The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Father, we would never know you unless you spoke to us. we just have to make it up if you didn't tell us who you were and what you wanted. And forgive us, because that's what we do a lot. Help us to hear your word this morning. I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and be with us. Show us your goodness, your justice. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes to hear what you have to say. Feed us, Lord, through your word. Please help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. And we pray that you write it on our hearts. You give us hearts that love you and love your ways. Uh, pray that you give us integrity. In Jesus' name, amen. Wouldn't you agree that one of the biggest challenges for those who are Christians is the issue of integrity? Huge challenge. What's integrity? The dictionary says integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. So you're not coming apart. You're, you're holding together. And that means you're consistent. You're living what you believe. You're doing what you claim. In every situation, no matter what crowd you're in, what time it is, what the day is like, you're the same. You are who you are. Integrity. Because integrity leads to credibility. Don't you have people in your life, even, you, even though you maybe disagree with them sometimes, they are who they are. You know what you're going to get. And so because of that, you can trust them. You can trust what they say. They mean what they say. Show me a life of integrity, and I'll tend to respect you, believe you. But what happens if you show me a life with no integrity? You're a fake. What's your credibility towards me then? You don't have any, right? There's, there's no integrity. You, you fall apart. Now, of course, nobody in this room has perfect integrity. Amen? Okay? I don't always do what I say I should do. In fact, every sermon I've ever preached, I didn't do everything that I preached. Um, our desires, our behaviors as Christians, are, are sometimes inconsistent with what we claim, right? Often. It happens a lot. And that just reminds us, let's take a moment, to think about the beauty of the integrity of Jesus. He's the only one that ever had perfect integrity, isn't he? And think about his integrity in saving us. The Father chooses to save unworthy, rebellious people. And sends his son. And so what does Jesus do? The eternal son of God takes on flesh and suffers as a human. And does he ever waver? You know, you read the gospels and he's tempted by Satan. And what, is, what does Jesus do? He holds. He has integrity. He follows his father in every way. He, he always loves the glory of his father. And what about his love for you and I? Integrity there? Lived a perfect life, went to the cross for you. I mean, talk about staying consistent all the way through to death for you, for me, to earn our forgiveness. He rises from the dead, and even now, what is he doing? He's interceding for you. He reigns for you. And what's he going to do one day? Is he going to leave us? He sent us the Holy Spirit, and he's going to return, and he's going to claim us, and we're going to be with him forever. Your whole hope for salvation depends on the integrity of Jesus Christ. And it will hold. He holds together. He is faithful. So we're saved by his integrity, not by our own. Of course. Of course. But if we belong to him and we see his beautiful integrity start to finish all the way through no matter what, what should that mean for you and for me? What should we want to be like? We should want, shouldn't we? Integrity. To hold fast. Because that's what Jesus is like. That's what we want to be like him. We want to glorify him. So the question today is a difficult one, but incredibly important. Because the question is really, what do we do when our integrity is compromised? What do we do as God's people when we look up and see, oh my gosh, we are living like fakes? How should we handle that? 
Because what are people in the outside world saying? It's almost like urban legend. How, how come a lot of people say they don't want to come to Jesus, they don't want to come to church? What do they say? The church is full of hypocrites. They have no integrity. And whether or not that's an actual experience for that person or just a smokescreen, whatever. But it's an issue, right? Will we have integrity? And will we have integrity when our integrity is compromised? What do we do then? So we're going to see that the challenge uh, in this chapter, the challenge to integrity is nothing new. We are continuing our study through 1 Corinthians. It's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. And we see in this church, the church of Corinth, the problem of integrity was a problem from the beginning. Um, How's the church doing when it comes to following Jesus? We've, we've, we've kind of collected a list, right? They're, they've got cliques and they're arguing and fighting and quarreling with each other. We're going to see next week they're suing each other. Some people are coming early to get drunk on the Lord's Supper stuff. Okay, they're, they, uh, they overemphasize um, human wisdom and so they, they demean the poor, they demean the weak. It goes on and on. Uh, they look like frauds. They claim Jesus. They don't act like it. They belong to him, but their integrity is compromised. So what should they do? That's what this passage is about. Paul is going to say to them, your integrity is compromised, and this is what you should do. We're going to see three basic things. Number one, what should our attitude be when our integrity is compromised? Number two, what should our approach be when our integrity is compromised? And number three, what should be our goal? Attitude, approach, goal. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 to see our attitude. First, we're going to notice the breach of integrity. Here you go. You ready? Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And all God's people said, gross. (laughs) Gross. So here's an individual who's totally lost his integrity. On Sunday morning, you know, he, he marks Christian on the survey on Sunday mornings, oh, how I love Jesus. And we don't want to think about the rest of the story. But there is no integrity in what he's living and doing and what he's saying and claiming. And it's an obvious breach. It's obvious. Everybody knows individual hypocrisy. In fact, it's so bad that what would the, the pagans, those who worship a host of God, and these are people who live in a world where there's, like, there's temple prostitutes. That's how you go worship your idol. Okay? And the pagans look at the Christian guy, and they're going, ew. So huge, huge breach in integrity. Because now what are the, the pagans who worship the host of gods? They see the Christian community, and they go, ew. And what do they think now of Father, Son, Holy Spirit? What's the point, right? Integrity is compromised individually. Not only that, the integrity is compromised corporately. Look at what Paul says about them in verse 2. And you are what? Arrogant. Now, he hits at their pride in a whole bunch of different ways through this letter. The bottom line is they thought they had arrived spiritually. They were so impressed with their own rhetoric and speaking and their spiritual gifts. They thought they had made it to varsity Christian status. And so Paul keeps saying, no, no, no. You're demeaning the very core of what it means to be Christian in a million ways. And then when it comes to this issue, their attitude is arrogance. Now, we don't really know if they're arrogant about how they're handling this guy specifically. Like maybe they're saying, oh, we're so tolerant and you can do everything in our community, it doesn't matter. Or maybe they're just arrogant in general and that's why they haven't done anything with this guy specifically. But the point here is their arrogance has led them to when the the entire community's integrity is breached, what is the response of the congregation? There is no response. Eh, it's okay. They haven't done anything about it. They haven't reacted. You know, Paul's emphasis in this whole chapter is not on the individual. He mentions what he's done, gives it basically one line. The rest of it is emphasis on you as a community, you as a church. What are you going to do about it? What about your 
integrity. So the Corinthians are arrogant. They know what the guy's doing. They haven't responded at all. The world thinks it's gross. And Paul's saying, your response to it is gross. Because here's the bottom line for this first point. If it doesn't bother me when my Christian brother has no integrity, it shows that I have no integrity. If it doesn't bother us when the church's integrity is compromised, it shows that we ourselves have no integrity. What should be the attitude in verse 2? Do you see it? You're arrogant. Ought you not to what? Mourn. Mourn. And the word mourn there is like grieving for someone who has died. Someone you love died and you're, oh, your heart is torn. It's painful. It hurts. It hurts. What should our response be as Christians when Christians in our community or I guess in the broader community are acting in a way that totally breaches our integrity? What should our response be? It should be mourning, deep sadness. It should bother you. It should bother you. And really this hits, this hits at the heart, right? Because if it doesn't bother you, that shows you don't care. And if you care, it will bother you. It'll hurt. I mean, think about what this guy in this situation is denying. Think about what he's denying. This man who's saying one thing and living another way. What's he saying about God's holiness? He's not. God isn't holy. What's he saying about the beauty of marriage as God created it? There isn't any. He has his dad's wife. What's he saying about the beauty of sexuality as God made it? He's denying it. What's he saying about the power of gospel to save you and change your heart and change how you live? There isn't any. What's he saying about the value of God's word, which defines how these things work? It's useless. In his behavior, the man is denying everything that is beautiful, theoretically anyway, to us as Christians. He's denying it all. And so we should mourn. It should hurt. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. What kind of mourning, what kind of road do you think this mourning should be on when you see it? You see that sin. It hurts. And then it should lead to repentance. What's repentance? Repentance is you're walking one way and you think, this is no good. And you turn and go the other way. This is how you became a Christian, right? You repented. You realized you were living for everything other than what you're supposed to be living for. And then you see who Jesus is and what he's done. And so in your life, you turned. You said, I, I want to I go towards Christ and what he's done. I want to trust him. Martin Luther said the entire Christian life is repentance. And we're, we're looking at a corporate version of a problem, right? There's this church and then there's this dude doing some crazy stuff in the church. And he's telling him, you should mourn and repent. Well, what about the individual aspect? Do you ever find yourself convicted of your own sin? You're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And what should be the response of your heart when you realize, you know, I denied God and his glory. I denied his gospel. I denied his love. I denied a lot of things in how I acted. What should be the heart's response? Mourning, okay? Does God just want you to lay in the mud and curse yourself for the rest of your life? And he talks about a, Paul talks about a worldly grief, and that's just feeling uh, guilty. There's no benefit to just laying there and feeling guilty forever. Godly sorrow leads, to, leads you to what? Repentance. Repentance. Which is, I'm going to turn back to you, Jesus. I'm going to turn back to the gospel. I confess my sin. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I want to change. I want to do better next time. What's God's response toward you every time you repent? It's forgiveness. It's his promise. If you confess your sin, 1 John, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive you of sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the Christian life is one of constant repentance. Remember, we said in the beginning, nobody in here has perfect integrity, right? Only Jesus can pull that off. I do not have perfect integrity. But my integrity as a Christian, my genuineness as a Christian, is shown by when I biff it up, what should my response be at some point? Repentance. Christian integrity looks like repentance. 
So I, I used to uh, kind of be a, a mentor to this kid at a church I went to in Massachusetts. And I was trying to... Um, I, I didn't have any community there, so the family was kind of, they'd take me and they'd feed me dinner, and I'd hang out with their kid, take them to sports practices, sometimes like games like that. Anyway, once I really let them down, I flaked on one of my promises. I totally forgot, and they were really hurt by that. So I'd try to be the good Christian guy for them, and I think I did a decent job up until then. Then I flaked on them, and, so, and, and they, were, they were pretty upset with me. So I thought about it. I went over to their house. And I said, you know what, I totally blew this up. I'm, I, it's, I have no excuse. I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? And they looked at me like I was an alien from another planet. Because I don't think they'd ever had anybody say to them, I'm sorry, please forgive me. All I need to say about that story is, Christian integrity for you and I is not living perfectly, it's repenting. And when you repent, doesn't, isn't there respect in that? Isn't there credibility in that? So the world doesn't need to see Christians being perfect people all the time. First of all, that would be a lie, right? And we're not. Secondly, there's already a little insecurity there, of like, oh, you Christian people have it all together and we're the losers outside. And we need to be like, no, false, not true. Okay? The thing that makes it different is that we want to follow Christ, and when we biff it up, what do we do? We repent. And when we repent, God's response to us is always, period, no matter the sin, no matter how many times you've committed it, when you repent, what's the response? Always, every time. Forgiveness. And so in the same way in a community, a church community, what's Christianity 101 for how we treat one another? When we hurt one another, we forgive. And especially with repentance, what always happens Restoration, you're forgiven. This is not a community of like, you better toe the line or you're out. It's not at all what it's like. It's a community that says, we live a lifestyle of repentance. What happens if you drive on the highway and you hold your steering wheel absolutely straight? You're going to go off the road. What do you kind of have to learn? Remember when you're a new driver and you overcorrect? What do you have to learn as a driver? There's, there's millions of constant corrections. Isn't that the Christian life? Jesus is there. He's leading me by his word, and I'm living my life. What do I need to constantly do? Constantly moving back to that line. That's repentance. I'm constantly moving back. So we mourn our sin, and it leads us to repentance. And that's why some breaches of integrity are so bad. Because what is this man not doing? He's not repenting of his sin. It's being celebrated. That's the huge breach. That's the huge break. So the attitude should be mourning towards repentance. And it's about what we value. You know, if we don't value God and his holiness and his word and his standards and his righteousness, it raises the question, why are we even here? What are we even doing if this isn't important to us? It's about integrity. So we mourn it. It leads to repentance. That's the attitude. What about the approach? Okay, we're mourning it. Now we need an approach. How do we get what we're supposed to be? Look at verses 3 to 4. Some weird words for us. Paul says, though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced my judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are too. Basically, remove him from your community. So is this like some Harry Potter out-of-body experience where Paul's like, I'm going to go visit the Corinthians in my soul, and he does a space warp or whatever, and he's floating there in the room. Is, is that the way we're supposed to take this? I don't think so at all. Not at all. But he is speaking the kind of language that means connection. It means connection. And this is especially hard for Americans because we view life individualistically. We kind of have this idea that I came here and here I am and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I am one, I am alone. Uh, Other cultures have a very different view of life. We're connected communally. We're connected deeply to one another. We're connected to our past. And for the church... 
we have a unity. Uh, theologians would even call it a mystical unity in Christ. Because when I put my faith in Christ, I can actually say that I'm in Christ. I'm connected to him. And if you put your faith in Christ, then you are in Christ. And if we're both in Christ, then what does that mean for one another? We have a, we have a, a unity and a relationship spiritually. So, so Paul will later call this church the body of Christ. So one thing you know about all your parts is they're connected. They don't all do the same thing, but intimately connected. And so we're connected to Christ. Not only that, Paul is their apostle. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ himself the cornerstone. So Jesus is what makes us who we are. But the apostles and their authority and their teaching builds us up as God's people. And so if you put all this together, look at, how, look, at, look, at, look at how Paul describes when they meet, verse 40. When you, the church, are assembled in the what? Do you see it? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is that, is that true for us today? Do we assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus? What does that mean? His name represents his character, who he is. I had to sign a bunch of papers lately, medical papers. What did it mean when I signed my name on the, on the line? Yep, I agree. There's my seal. Yes. Yep. I'm in. So when we say we meet in the name of Jesus, what are we saying about our meeting? Jesus goes. Yep. Those are my people. They're loving what I love. They're doing what I want them to do. They're believing what I want them to believe. We have his name on us. Jesus is in charge here, right? That's what we're saying. He's our king. He's our Lord. And so we're here supposedly, theoretically, for who? For him. We want him to be pleased. It's tricky to think of church. I want all of you to be pleased, and I do in a way, but I have to remember, who, who do I really want to be pleased? I want Jesus to be pleased. The best case scenario is we all want Jesus to be pleased. That's what pleases us, is what pleases him. And so Paul is saying, this is, this is who you are. You're under his authority. He's the Lord. And then I'm with you in spirit, because I'm your apostle. I'm, remember, apostles are messengers sent with authority by Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, and he gave the church apostles as authority to build the church up. So why am I preaching from 1 Corinthians 5 and not Matt Ford's advice for your life? Because my advice for your life isn't any, it's not important. I'm not an apostle. My worth to you as a pastor and as a preacher comes from how accurate I am in teaching you the apostles' teaching. That's my role for you is to unpack what the apostles say. I'm not, I have authority in as far as I'm faithful to the apostles' teaching. That's it. And so Paul is saying, basically, when your integrity is compromised, you need to mourn this, because this is hitting at what's most important, and you need to reset, reboot, remember your authority. You need to remember what you're all about. So who do you think the authority is for the dude who has his, mom, his dad's wife? Who's his authority? What's his, what's his, where does he get his value statement from? Okay. Right now, it's himself. It's what he wants. And he looks just like or worse than the world around him. What makes us who we are? We meet in the name of Jesus. He makes us who we are. And how do we know who he is and what he wants for us as his people? The teaching of the apostles. Where else would you go for that? You'll be making it up. So when the integrity is compromised, you need to remember who you are. You need to remember your authority. You need to remember, what do I live for? How do I know? And the answer is, I live for Christ. How do you know? According to the apostles' teaching. And where do you find the apostles' teaching? The scriptures, the Bible. That's how we know. Reboot, 
reset. What should be our approach when integrity is compromised? I think you can apply this individually. You can apply this communally. For the community, he's saying you need to mourn this sin, and it needs to lead you to repentance and change. You need to remember your authority. It's the Lord Jesus, and you know him through the apostles' teaching. For me and you, when we find sin in our lives, what should we do? Mourn it towards repentance, and then reboot, reset, remember. Who are you? I follow Christ. What does it mean? Let me find out in the apostles' teaching. Remember your authority. Reset, follow Jesus according to his word. Third, we need to have the right aspiration or the right goal. And really the answer is uh, all you need is love. The goal is love. And I need to show you how love is underneath things like deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. <laughs> what? Okay. Look at verse 4. The goal is love. First, it's love individually. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, here we get some tricky language, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. So, yes, we believe in Satan. A lot of the world doesn't. Um, I don't think it's that hard to believe in a personal evil force, do you? Are these... You see what happens out there. And the Bible is clear that there is, he's a, he's a fallen angel, so he's very influential, very powerful. And, and basically, there's a phrase, he's the God of this world, which means it, it doesn't mean that he's um, standing up there duking it out with the awesome sovereign God. No, but in this time, in this age, at this place, Satan has sway. He has influence over the ways of the world. He's instigating all the godlessness and all the systems, all the cultures. And, and, and the apostles also tell us he's out after us individually. He wants to, to wreck you. He wants to ruin you. And the way he does that is by saying to you that God's not good, not trustworthy, you shouldn't follow him, and that sin will make you happy. And that's what he's after. Okay, so what does it possibly mean that we deliver this man to Satan? If you take that literalistically, you're like, okay, so... What's Satan's address and what's the truck that can drive there? You know, put him in. I'll take him. That'll be weird. Is Satan here? I have someone for you. you know? <laughs> of course not. What, what does it mean? Well, when, when you trust Christ, the apostles teach that you've been transferred out of one kingdom into another. You, you used to be over here. You used to belong to the darkness. You used to love it, live it, breathe it. And now you've been taken out. Now you've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And your experience of that is this. We are God's temple. We saw a couple weeks ago. His presence is with us. As we're here underneath his word, we've been pulled out of that kingdom. We're safe from it. Satan can't, he doesn't own us anymore. He doesn't control us anymore. We're free. We belong to Christ. And so to deliver this man to Satan, and we also have in context, what is Paul telling him to do in verse 2? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So basically says, kick him out of the church, because the church is the domain of Jesus' rule, and so we're going to go let him, we're going to make him have integrity. We're going to make him have integrity. He's living like he doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore. And so we're just going to go ahead and say, all right, be consistent with the rest of it. Because we deliver him to Satan. So we're saying, all right, experience yourself as an outsider again to God. Experience yourself as an outsider to Jesus Christ. And the purpose is to do what? Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh and what's flesh this is tricky because the word flesh can mean a lot of different things it can mean just your physical body but that's not the meaning here your flesh often means your rebellious inclination against God it's that part of you that says I don't like you God I don't like what you want I'm going to do my own thing and so the reason you push him out of the community is so that his 
sinful inclinations can be what? Destroyed. So basically, it's go live out in the world, taste your separation from God, feel your distance from him and the distance from his people so that your sinful inclination will get bitter. It'll get burned. You won't want it anymore so that hopefully one day he'll do what? What do we want? We want him to repent. We want him to be saved. Here's the scary thing. Practiced, blatant, unrepentant sin raises the question on whether or not you're a Christian. Only God knows, but it raises the question. You can't have any assurance if you're practicing blatant, public, unrepentant sin because the heart of being a Christian is repenting. And so the idea is let him go taste it so he'll get burned by it. He won't want it anymore. And he'll repent and he'll come back. The whole goal is that he'll be saved on the day of Jesus. And even though there's all this pain, what will be the response when he says, I was wrong, I repent, I'm done with this? What's the response? You're in. Full reconciliation, full forgiveness, nothing but grace, full restoration. So what's the goal here, even though you're kicking somebody out of a community? The goal is love. You ever heard the phrase tough love? Some of you are having to live it out right now. Tough love. What do you do when somebody is practicing behavior that's horrible for them? You don't want to confront it, do you? I don't don't like confrontation. It makes me sick. I feel nauseous. I hate it. Then you see them continuing to do it over and over again. And you finally hit the wall on, if I love them, I've got to I've got to step in. If I love him, I've got to step in. And that's what this is saying. The goal is love. Love for the individual, but it's not just for the individual. It's love for the community. Look at verses 6 to 8. Some more language that's difficult for us. Paul asks the question in verse 6. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. (laughs) I mean, if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) In Paul's mind, he's thinking of two Israelite feasts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're probably more familiar with Passover. Passover remembers God's salvation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So Egypt was abusing Israel, even committing infanticide against Israel. And God says, enough, I'm rescuing my people and I'm bringing them to myself. And so the big epic moment of this salvation was when the angel of God's wrath comes against Egypt, right? And strangely, God says, well, Israelites, even though I'm going to save you, it's not because you're better than the Egyptians. You're sinful too. So you need a way out underneath the wrath. And the way out was to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And you put the blood on the door, and then when the angel of wrath came, he would see the blood, the blood of the substitute that died in your place, and he would pass over you. You'd be overlooked. You wouldn't face his wrath. And so you see, what does Paul call Jesus in verse 7? For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So the exodus in this massive event was just an appetizer as to what Jesus would do for us. He is the Lamb of God who was slain as a substitute for our sin. And when we trust in him, his blood is on the door of our lives. And so we are saved from God's wrath because Jesus took it for us in our place. So it, it frees us. It's the ultimate deliverance from the penalty of sin. We're forgiven. And the power of sin. It doesn't own us anymore. Okay. So the part of Israel's exodus experience was, okay, you've got to leave fast. You've got to leave tonight. And that means when you cook bread, what do you not have time for? You don't have time for the leaven. You don't have time for it to rise. So make unleavened bread. Eat it quick. Get out of there. Okay. And so later, there was a feast that was connected with Passover called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A lot of times, the Israelites would keep... Now, I had to read this in commentaries. I'm no bread expert, okay? Evidently, a lot of times, Israelites would keep some leaven. So what is that? That's 
you probably know more about this than I do. Fermented dough. And you'd keep some, and then you could mix it in with the new loaf because then it ferments. And that helps with taste, I guess, and probably texture. But what's the problem in the ancient world if you keep the leaven going for too long? You can get infection. Infection. And so once a year, there's get rid of all your leaven. Throw it out and start over. It's almost like a a health code. Uh, Start over, make it pure. And then, of course, there's tons of uh, symbolism to it. God has saved us. Not because we were righteous, right? We're sinners just like everybody else. He saved us by his grace. But now that we're his, what do we want to do with the leaven of our sin? Throw it out. That's why Paul says, you're a new lump. What? Yeah, you guys are like a, lo- a, you guys are like a lump of dough. What? There's no leaven in you. What? Jesus has saved you and made you his people. He died for your sin. You have a new start. You're clean. You're washed clean. So let's put away old habits and let's live for him. Isn't that what he's saying? Live like a new lump because you already are. It's a beautiful statement of how identity works for us. Remember every other worldview says do stuff, earn an identity, earn it, be a good person. Christianity says fat chance, can't do it. Standard's too hard. You're not a good person. But Jesus did it for you. He earned it for you. You can have his life, his death, his resurrection as yours. Just by trusting in him, you are new before you change a thing in Christ. But now because you are new, you are loved, the Christian ethic is be who you are. Live out who you are. So he's telling the Corinthians, you are a new lump. Be a new lump. By getting rid of the leaven. And what does the leaven stand for in this situation? Unrepentant sin. And just like that old leavenly dough can infect the new loaf, what's Paul's argument? If you don't act against this public, blatant, unrepentant sin, what will it do to the whole community? It'll infect us all. You'll hurt the whole community if you don't deal with us. Why do you think that is? Paul says, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us celebrate the feast with sincerity. How can we come together and be like, Jesus, we love you, we want to live for you, even though we know some of us are totally doing the opposite and we haven't shown that we care very much. What is happening to each one of our hearts in that situation? We're fake. It doesn't, God's holiness doesn't matter. Following Jesus doesn't matter. Hypocrisy's okay. We just keep rolling with it. And what happens to us very soon? Affects the whole thing. Do you know Jesus closes churches? You read in the book of Revelation, Jesus closes churches. And you know why he closes them? They're fake. They quit caring. They'd lost their very identity. Does it, sound, does it sound kind of rough or exclusive to kick somebody out of your community? I think it does. But you know, isn't any community worth anything going to do this at some point? So say you are in a, say somebody out there cares about marriage equality, and they're on the community for marriage equality in their city. They support gay marriage. Then they have, say, they have a religious experience. And all of a sudden they think, this is wrong. How long will they be on that board? How long will they be on that committee? They'll be out soon. Why? Because the community has some integrity. What's the community about? We support marriage equality. And so, therefore, everybody in our community should also support marriage equality because that's what we're about. If we lose that, then we're not that anymore. It's integrity. Every community in a free country has the right to that. What about us? What are we about? Jesus and following him, right? Theoretically. No, that's what we're about. 
We're about Jesus and following him. And if somebody, blat- again, it's without repentance. We're all, we all have holes in our integrity, but what are we doing theoretically? We're repenting, okay? And that's okay. That's normal. That's the Christian life. But when somebody's like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, sure, Jesus, but I'm going to do this. I sure as heck am going to do this. I'm not repenting. He denies the very thing we're about, and we lose our integrity. It infects us all. So it's love for the community that kicks him out. It's love for the community. Last one, the motive, is love for God's glory. Look at verses 9 to 10. These are really important verses. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedier swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So you can just hear people in the church, can't you? And it happens in the modern church as well. Oh, okay, so we're supposed to remove this guy because he's practicing sin, and so therefore we shouldn't hang out with anybody doing any sin. Can you see it? Can you, can you feel how that happens? And Paul's like, no, 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 that is not what I meant. What are you going to do? Get on a spaceship and fly away, right? That's impossible. Not only that, you are listening to the greatest bridge-building missionary in the history of the world who's writing this, right? I become all things to all people, Paul says, so that I might save some. He goes and befriends, he goes to and befriends sinners of all kinds, doesn't he? All the time. And that's following the pattern of our Lord. Who did Jesus hang out with? Tax collectors, sinners, the worst, okay? So no, no, no. Uh, Listen, is it our job to judge the world, Paul says? So important. Is it your job to judge the world? Oh, who's going to judge them? God, is he going to do okay at that? Does he need our help? Is he all right? Of course he is. God will judge them. Now, of course, the context here is a relational separation, right? It's a relational separation. He's asking for a relational separation from the church and this guy who's claiming Christ and doing horrid things. And so he's, the, 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 the Corinthians will think, oh, we should relationally separate from everybody who's not a Christian doing things too. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's the opposite. God will judge them. You don't judge them. You preach the gospel to them. You love them. You connect with them. What's the issue? Verse 11. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who, and here's the key phrase, with anyone who what? Bears the name of brother or sister. What's the difference? The difference is the person says, I claim Jesus. Should there be a different standard for people who say, I claim Jesus, versus people who say, I don't claim Jesus? Can we expect people who don't claim Jesus to want to live for and follow Jesus? No. Why would they even want to until they meet Jesus personally? But should we expect those who know Jesus to want to live for and follow him? Yeah, not perfectly. Of course not. But genuinely, right? Honestly, sincerely, with integrity. And so if someone is practicing... And here Paul lists sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunker, swindler. The context of the city of Corinth shows us that these are pervasive, habitual lifestyles. So one commentator says, it should be noted that all three of these sins, sexual immorality, idolatry, and greed, were particularly prevalent in Corinth in the mid-50s. So we're not here talking about the occasional feeling of greed, because I've had that, have you? Yes. We're talking about people who are stealing from other people, extorting other people. What would you do if you knew somebody in our congregation was actually stealing from other people somehow? Would, that, would you be okay with that? Or idolatry there. We're not, we're not talking about the idolatry of the heart, which we all have, we struggle with. We're talking about they would actually go to idol feasts and be like, yes, we worship and serve whoever. How can you go do that and then go worship Jesus? Would it bother you if, if somebody who claimed Christ was also going to worship at a mosque? And they said, oh, I can do both. That's just blowing up any lines of what Christianity means at all. And so he says, if somebody claims the name of Christ, and again, they're living in blatant, practiced, 
unrepentant sin, what does he say? Verse 11, don't even eat with such a one. For the ancient Middle East, table fellowship was a huge thing. It was a huge thing. I don't think it means ever in any detail, okay? When I, when trying to apply the, the principles of this passage takes such care and such patience and such humility, and I think it's different for every single, in, every single instance, every single person is different. We're looking at principles, aren't we? Principles. The New Testament doesn't give you lists of rules. Aren't you glad? It gives you principles to apply. So the principle is for the love of the individual, for the love of the community, and for the love of God's glory, there needs to be some sort of a separation relationally and in fellowship when somebody claims the name of Jesus and then totally does the opposite, blatantly, publicly, unrepentantly. And it needs to be said again, if they repent, what happens? You're back. How many times? Cabillion times. Never stops. Because repentance doesn't mean easy button, it's fixed. I'm never going back again, it's never hard for me anymore. Is that what repentance means? How many of you are still repenting from the same sins you've been repenting of for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 70 years? Yes. It's constant, right? It's constant. So it's not like, oh, I've repented and now the sin isn't hard, hard for me anymore. No, it's constant. So with repentance, you're forgiven, you're brought in. What's the key problem? It's when there's no repentance. I won't stop. That's when we have to say, our integrity is being breached. And then Paul quotes in verse 13, 12 to 13, what do I have to do without judging outsiders? Nothing. But then he says, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? Did you know that? What did he say to Christians? You are to do what? I know, I know. Culturally, you're like, no, I don't ever judge people. Okay, quit. Okay, what do you do when you're looking for somebody to hire at work? What are you doing? You're judging the best candidate. What are you doing when you're picking a babysitter? Okay, aren't you judging who you think will be safe? Come on, you judge. What are you doing when you judge someone for judging? Dang! <laughs> How dare you judge? That's evil. Oh, I just did it. Okay, no. That text about don't judge people from the Gospels is about don't be self-righteous in your judgment. Totally different. Totally different. Don't be self-righteous in your judgment. But we are to judge one another based on what? The Bible. There are lines that if I crossed, I hope you would judge me. If I didn't preach the gospel faithfully, if I went one way without changing, without repenting, I hope you would judge me with love, humility as a sinner, but I hope you would do it because there are definitions as to what it means to be a Christian versus what it means to not. There are, God has boundaries in the sense that he's shown who he is and what he loves. And we don't want to be a people who say, I love Jesus and then live the blatant opposite. Right? It's ironic because some people say, oh, see those Christians, they're so closed-minded and they kick people out of their community. But that's why I won't go to church because they're all hypocrites. Well, which way do you want it? Should we strive for integrity, which means sometimes hard conversations, so that we can have some integrity? So at least we want the world to say, man, I don't agree with them or I don't believe what they believe, but they sure seem consistent. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. I want integrity. So Paul here quotes from Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy, you know, what's amazing is Deuteronomy, you have the Mosaic Law written to Israel, God's covenant people. And if you remember just the big picture, it was their job to be a light to the world and to show the beauty of God. That was their job. Their job was to be an, an, a, a glow, an image of the glory of God so that the world would say, we would like to know that God. And now Paul is applying this verse written to Israel, and who's he applying it to? Gentiles in Corinth, just recently saved out of idolatry. And so what Paul is saying to them is that in Christ, you are now supposed to be a light to the world. You are now supposed to be a smell, a taste of the glory of God. And the only way you can do that is if you have what? Integrity. 
We need to love the glory of God enough to have integrity. Because if we don't have integrity, whose name gets demeaned, gets trashed? The name of Jesus. So there's a lot in this passage. It's principles. You can apply it personally. You can apply it, apply it as a community. But when we see a breach of integrity, what's our first response? Mourn it. Remember what you love. Repent. Then reset according to the authority. We follow the Lord Jesus through the teaching of his apostles. Then third, the goal is love. Love. It's love for the individual. It's love for the community. It's love for the glory of God in the world. Guys, we were saved by the integrity of Jesus. Let's pray and strive for and live for by the power of his spirit, integrity in our lives so that God and his gospel look good and we can be genuine, sincere examples of being his repentant people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us that every time we repent, you forgive. And I pray for everybody here, Lord, if we're aware of any rebellion against you in our lives, that you would give us a soft spirit of repentance, of confession, and of, and of change. And Lord, in this world that looks at Christianity and looks at the church and says, fakes, help us, Lord, to have integrity internally. Help us to be turning to you, growing in you, caring about your glory, caring about your name is represented by us. And we pray as a community, Lord, that we would have integrity so naturally, so personally, that it never even reaches a level like what we see in this chapter. God, that we be working to follow you. But Lord, in that day when integrity is breached, give us your heart, your truth, your ways. Let us mourn the sin. Let us repent. And let us live with the goal of love for the individual, for the community, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.